Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41 as we continue on in our studies uh, through this book that was uh, titled by the early church, The Fifth Gospel. Uh, We continue on. We began, we came back to the book of Isaiah a few weeks ago, picking up at the beginning of chapter 40. And this morning, we find ourselves looking at verses, uh, chapter 41, verses 11 through 20. So Isaiah chapter 41, and we'll pick up at verse 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you man of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, you sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine tree together that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Your Word is so precious to us, a lamp to our feet and a guide to our path. We ask that Your Spirit would come now and illuminate Your Word as we study it. We pray that He would press it deep into our hearts, that we would glory in the grace of our great God. Help us to see You more clearly, that we might give You the praise that You are due. Amen. Well, you remember a few weeks ago when we began our studies back in Isaiah after a short break, we heard that the very first message that God had for Israel as they sat now languishing in Babylon, bearing the cost of their rebellion against God and facing the humiliation of their exile was chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. If you have ever wondered what God's heart of mercy and grace looks like, it looks like that. Overflowing kindness and gentleness to a people wounded by their own sin 
and a message of unqualified hope and grace. There was no hesitation. There was no word to Isaiah to come to them and say something to make sure that they really got it, to make sure that they really understood that what they had done was indeed really bad. Instead, there was simply an unqualified word of comfort and assurance that their sin was pardoned. When we looked at that message a few weeks ago, we noted just how much it looks like the parable of the prodigal son. In the fever of his rebellion, we can imagine how that prodigal's inner defense attorney convinced him that what he was doing was really not that bad. We can imagine his self-justifying thoughts, convincing himself that, you know, he was rightly grieved by his elder brother's privilege. And he was rightly grieved by his father's authority, and he had a right to make a break and go and live life on his own terms. You can imagine how his conscience was dulled as he gave himself up to wine, women, and song. As he came to the bottom of his reckless living, how he could convince himself that this was just a temporary setback. And once he had taken care of some things, then the good times were sure to return. As that prodigal sat in the pig's thighs, bearing the shame and degradation of his sin, the guilt of his sin lay heavy upon him, and he resolved to go back to his father. Now, he knew he had no right to ask anything of his father. But convinced of what he knew of his father's character, he knew that his father was merciful, and so he determined to go back and simply ask to be a hired servant, the guilt of his sin pressing down upon him so that he... How did the father greet him? Not sitting there with fingers rapping on his desk, asking him what on earth he thought he had been doing. The father didn't welcome him back with a sharp re reprimand. There was no doubt the son knew the effect of his sin on his father, but there was no attempt by that father now to stick the boot in and kick his son while he was down. Simply, the father, Jesus describes in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And verse 23, called for his servants to bring the best robe and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and kill that fattened calf and celebrate because this son who was dead in his transgressions and sins was now alive again. He was lost, but now he was found. That is the heart of God towards sinners who come back to him in faith. Not a halfway forgiveness in which we have to show that we deserve the mercy and grace of God, but a simple unqualified, unreserved, wholehearted compassion that rejoices when sinners come home. It's the very thing that David sings of in Psalm 103, isn't it? 
Verse 8, David sits and he sings, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. His mercy, his grace, his patience, his love rooted in a fundamental compassion for his children. And that's the very thing that God through Isaiah is driving home into the hearts of his exiled people here. Now, it doesn't take much to think of how these exiles must have been resistant to such words of abounding grace. Perhaps you know it personally, the struggle to believe that God truly loves you like this, like Psalm 103, like Luke 15, the struggle to believe that in Christ God relates to you as a patient and merciful and compassionate father rather than a cold and impartial judge. It's not unusual for Christians to wonder about the heart of God towards them and to wonder if God truly does love them that much. After all, we know our sins. We know how often we have strayed from the God we love. We know how often we have even sinned against knowledge, knowing it was sin, yet doing it anyway. We carry all kinds of mental and psychological and emotional wounds that tend in that other direction. Maybe you had a hard and domineering parent who didn't remember that you were dust and who held out then an impossibly high standard for you, quick to remind you of how often you have failed. Maybe you've had a boss who's only cared about the bottom line and about the product, and who has not cared about the toll that his leadership takes on those who are below him. Or maybe it just comes from within, perhaps no real identifiable exterior cause, just an inner low self-esteem you that you are not good enough. And maybe you haven't had that. Maybe your life has been blessedly free of all such things, and, and praise God. You understand for many Christians, these wounds loom large and they fight against the gospel promises. And we can struggle to believe that this is how God loves us. But God, knowing our frame, 
God remembering that we are dust is so tremendously kind towards us that he repeats it again and again and again and again. You remember what Martin Luther said in the introduction to Galatians? He said of the gospel, it is most necessary that we know this gospel well teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's what God does with us, isn't it? He brings this gospel and beats it into our heads continually, telling us again and again and again that He loves us and He is aboundingly for us. That's why this passage didn't just end at chapter 40, verse 1 or verse 2. It, it could have, couldn't it? These two verses just dripping with grace. I mean, what, what more precious words to a sin-wounded people than the call to treat them gently and assure them that not only has God forgiven their sins, but He has abundantly pardoned them, replacing their sins with a double portion of His good gift. One commentator wrote on the end of chapter 40, verse 2, that God replies to all of Judah's sins, not with the grosser scale and weights, but with a double pardon, the pardon of grace amply, generously. That could have been enough, couldn't it? But God, knowing our frailty, knowing our frame, remembering that we are dust, continues on rotating this diamond, showing more of its beautiful facets to lay before His people the utter lavishness of His grace towards them. Last week, we ended with verses 8 and 10, 8, eight 9 and 10, and that tremendous word of reassurance that even though Judah were bearing the consequences of their sin, they had nothing to fear because God would come and strengthen them, and He would help them, and He would uphold them with His righteous right hand. And it began, you remember, with that crucial and beautiful double naming in verse 8. God not just addressing His people as Israel, but as Israel and Jacob. Israel, of course, being the, the covenant name that encapsulated the security of God's covenantal commitment to His people. But Jacob being the name that encapsulated their sin. Jacob particularly, that name first encapsulating Jacob's propensity to deception, but now extrapolated to, to basically identify the sin of the Lord's people. The, the patriarch Jacob bearing both names, reminding him that he was a sinner, but a sinner justified, a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. It was that sweet honesty of God's grace, no pretending that the sin didn't happen. There's no minimizing of the transgression, no playing down the heinousness of sin, no question that perhaps God loves us this lavishly because somehow He hasn't noticed the worst about us. 
No, God, coming first to Jacob and saying to him, you are Israel and Jacob. I know the worst of you, Jacob. And still you are my beloved Israel. This double naming, coming to the Judeans, languishing in Babylon, saying to them, you are Jacob. I know the worst about you. But you are Israel, my people, my son. Here is the promise that even in their sin, God was committed to them. And in that commitment, He promised to redeem them from the consequences of their sin. And it is essentially now just the very same thing that is repeated, the heart of the passage we just read this morning. Verse 14, really containing that central thought, fear not, you worm Jacob, you Man of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. It's the same thought, isn't it? But now God revisits it, circles back to it, covers it again in order to heighten it and emphasize it and expand the vision of what this all means. But there was no mistake. Judah was a worm. As they sat in Babylon, they sat there having been debased by their sin, having been utterly degraded by their sin. They were a worm. But you understand, this isn't an insult. In fact, they are called this here simply to emphasize the tremendous heights of God's glories and grace to them. What is God going to do to these Vermean people? It's a good word, isn't it? Vermean. It's not even in word spell check. What is God going to do to these worm-like people? Well, He's going to help them, and He is going to abundantly help them. What is he going to do specifically? Well, he's going to be their redeemer. What does that mean? Well, it means, verses 11 and 12, that those who come against them will be put to shame and confounded, and they will, in the last analysis, perish and be as nothing at all. But why are people coming against them? Well, we know the story, don't we? It was the great consequence of their sin. It's what God, through Isaiah, had warned again and again and again, that if they continued on in their rebellion, then He would give them up to the hands of their enemies. And Judah, in their sin, had convinced themselves that they were strong and powerful, and they didn't really need to rely on God. And so, God had warned them that the punishment would fit the crime. If they did not relent, and He would show them just how weak they truly were. But here now the promise comes that those who are coming against them will be put to shame and confounded. It's the promise that the mighty Babylonians will not have the last word. But instead, a restoration is coming for this weak and seemingly insignificant Vermean people. And everything and everyone that is poised against them now will be brought low as Israel will be exalted. It's the promise of a release from the shame and the humiliation of their exile. The shame and the humiliation that their sin, ha sin had brought upon them. It is this promise of restoration 
a promise of the restoration of honor and dignity. It is the promise of the son being given the best cloak and shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger. But notice God doesn't just stop there. He continues and he says, well, my promise to be your redeemer is also the promise, verses 15 and 16, to give them victory over all that would seem to stand in their way, over all the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that now lay before them. And there were a lot of seemingly insurmountable obstacles, weren't there? Think about it. Now, post 586 BC, as they sit languishing in Babylon, what has happened to the promised land, that good and burdened land that God had brought them into? It has been laid waste. Their cities destroyed, their vines cut down. That's significant. A vine does not just grow overnight. So their legacy crops gone, their habitations broken down, the capital laid to ruin, the temple desolate. And here were they now languishing in Babylon, hundreds of miles away as a conquered people. Even if they could somehow imagine how to get out from under the thumb of the Babylonians, what had they to go back to? Right? It all just seemed so much, too much. But here, God reassures them that He will bring an unimaginable restoration. Right? Notice how Isaiah mixes his metaphors here to make his point. This worm becomes a threshing sled. This The image moves from this image of a weak and helpless worm to that of a a threshing sled, a heavy wooden sled studded with with metal teeth that would be driven over wheat to separate the grain from the the chaff. God says you you will go from being a worm to a, a threshing sled. Right now in exile, they look so weak and so vulnerable, but the day is coming when they will gain victory over their enemies, and it will be an effortless victory, like a, like a mythical giant threshing sled that is grinding down whole mountain ranges. But then lastly, in verses 17 through 19, God's promise to be their Redeemer means that they will find rest, and they will be at peace. The picture here is that of somebody wandering in a desert wasteland, somebody thirsty and and weary and, and nowhere to find relief from that oppressive, constant beating of the desert sun. It's the picture of Israel, Judah here, having forsaken the satisfaction and joy and abundance of living in a happy submission to God and dwelling in His kingdom, flowing with milk and honey, And now finding themselves just wandering in the desert with nothing to drink and no shade to give them relief. A rebellion just like that with the prodigal son. It had seemed to promise them so much. The promise of joys and happiness forevermore, but only ending up in a barren 
wasteland. But what does God promise to do for them? He says to them, not just that he'll give them a cold glass of water. There's an old movie, an old World War II black and white movie. It's called Ice Cold in Alex. And it's about uh, soldiers that have to take a wounded prisoner of war across the Sahara to Alexandria. And the thing that keeps them going is the thought of an ice cold beer in Alexandria. But God doesn't just say to his people here, I will give you that ice cold glass of water on the other side of this desert. He doesn't even say to them, I will give you a well where you can draw water. Look at the image in verse 18. He says, I will open rivers and fountains and I will make the wilderness a pool of water. But it's the image of these hot and thirsty wanderers not just sipping a cold glass of something that will slake their thirst, but here come diving into deep pools of cold, sweet water. Not only that, God says, I will, I will raise up shade trees for you, and I will give you relief and rest, and I will give you a place to be at peace. And, and why, why is God going to do all of this? Well, verse 20, for the display of His glory in His compassion towards His children. They were sinners, absolutely, and they deserved nothing of this. God says he's going to do it simply because he wants to do it. And so that his sin-sick people would see just how much he loves them, so that they would see this great mercy and grace and compassion of God and delight themselves in him, so that they would see that God loved them not because they were lovable, but just because he is gracious and because he had chosen to love them. To these worms, God promises that He will work to raise them up and to restore them from the degradation of their sin. To these prodigals comes this lavish promise that God will bring them up out of their sin and shame, and He will restore them to a place of honor and peace and joy. And you understand that this is the promise of the gospel to you, Christian. Isaiah 41 is not just a picture of God's love for them. It is a picture of God's love for you. Christian, this is the heart of God towards you in all of your sin. The gospel comes to you and it tells you, as Tim Keller put it, that you are worse than you ever dared imagine. You are Jacob. You are a, a sinner. And there's no minimizing it, and there's no writing it off. There's no excusing it, and, and God has noticed it. All of it. The judgment of God. That you deserve only to be cast out. That you deserve to be Cain, a weary and thirsty wanderer on the earth. You're Jacob. But the gospel comes to you and says to you that while you are Jacob, you are also Israel. And so you are more loved than you ever dared hope. A sinner 
Yes. But a sinner justified. A sinner redeemed. A sinner forgiven. A sinner with a glorious hope for the future and the knowledge that God will lay waste all that is against you. And the knowledge that God will transform even the direct consequences of your sin, and He will make something abundantly beautiful out of that desert wasteland. And why is He going to do it? Only and ever because of His his grace towards you. Not because you deserve it, but for the manifest display of His grace, because God, remembering that you are dust, shows compassion to you and brings you to a place of peace and rest and restores you. You don't deserve any of it. Judah didn't deserve any of this, but God comes to them here. God comes to you here and and says that He gazes upon you with His as someone put it, with an utterly unflappable affection. And in that affection, He does what is needed to cover your sin and to restore you. That's what Paul writes of in Romans 8. Turn with me there in your Bibles. We're going to read a good chunk of this. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. The apostle writes, and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
that you hear there the great key to all of this. How can God love us this much? How can God love you? Worm like Jacob. Because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Because Jesus died and took your condemnation upon himself as he went to the cross. Because Jesus was raised showing that all the condemnation against you and your sin has been borne away. No more death to die. No more condemnation to be faced. Because Jesus now lives and sits at the right hand of the Father and He prays for you. So that nothing and no one can get between you and God. All foes defeated, all mountains ground down, all desert wastes turned into blossoming pastures, satisfied by Jesus, the fount of living water. Christian, that is how much God loves you. Dane Ortland once wrote, he said, What is it above all else that weary sinners most need to know? What is oxygen to us in our distressed, pain-riddled lives? The radiant sun of divine favor shining down on God's children. While the clouds of sin and failure may darken our feelings of that favor, it cannot be lessened any more than a tiny, wispy cloud can threaten the existence of the sun. The sun is shining it cannot stop. Be at peace. You are a sinner, and your sin brings consequences, and sometimes those consequences are large and ugly. But here is the promise of the gospel for you, sinner. If your faith is in Christ, if you have cast yourself upon Him, if you trust in His saving work, if you have repented of your sin and turned from it to Jesus, then the promise is that God will bring you up out of that sin and its consequences and all of its ugliness. If your faith is in Christ, it does not matter who you are or what you have done. This is the promise of the gospel. While you are Jacob, you are also Israel. While you are a worm, the Lord your God holds your right hand and says to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how rich and full and deep this glorious gospel. We thank you, Father, that you remember that we are dust and you beat this gospel into our heads continually. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to believe it more. And believing it, help us to live lives of holy obedience that simply are centered on returning praise to God. Teach us this gospel, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.